Hello, great to see you again, and welcome back to another installment of Advice You Can Trust. I'm your host, Ryan Ruff. We've got James Nichols in the on-deck circle waiting momentarily. We'll be bringing him on to dive into today's topic. But first, just some housekeeping. We appreciate you coming back for you know to join us for another episode. Clearly, some information that we've discussed in prior episodes, you've you've taken to heart, you've benefited from it. So we're you know we're grateful to have you back, and we've got a great conversation teed up for you today. It's a conversation that. Uh, is close to home, literally and figuratively. Uh, so we're going to be diving into the inner workings of an affluent family and some of the challenges that they might face when it comes to their wealth specifically. But we've got James to kind of shed some light on it for us today. So let's go ahead and bring him on. James, how you doing today? Good to see you. I'm doing great. Great to see you again as well. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a really nice conversation today. We have really hammered home the importance of the stress testing process and, you know, the the importance of the human element and weaving a lot of that into those conversations with your clients. And that's all super important stuff. But today we're going to be focusing on families in particular, specifically a document that can help families out. And I was thinking about how I wanted to start today's conversation. I think the best way to do it is just to kind of address the overall concerns that families, affluent families, that is typically face. And it's, it's usually one of these. It's they're thinking about how they want to manage their wealth overall. They're thinking about how do we pass down our wealth to our, you know, our later generations to help continue our legacy moving forward. They obviously are thinking about how their wealth can be utilized to achieve personal goals. Uh, you know, put the kids through college, you know, donate to charities and causes that they believe in that sort of thing. And then the last one, which is probably the least savory one is to protect their wealth, uh, from anyone potentially taking it unjustly. So all of that being said, James, you know, I, I think a good place to start for families is to ensure that, Hey, everyone's on the same page when it comes to their wealth, because you don't want, you know, the matriarch on one, you know, school of thought. You don't want the, the patriarch on a different school of thought. Everyone wants to be aligned. So to start today's conversation, James, in your experiences, what kind of unique challenges arise when families with wealth ultimately attempt to work together to manage those, those significant assets? So wealthy families are in a very unique situation when it comes to wealth and assets. Affluence can help families achieve great things and realize their shared vision, but it also creates or it can create resentments and risks that, that may potentially damage a family's uh, financial position and emotional connection. So um, decisions about significant wealth involve multiple family members, you know, for more than one generation, and the opportunity for conflicts can arise and can become greatly magnified as we see, you know, as wealth really increases. There are some studies mm -hmm. indicating the vast majority I mean, more than three quarters of high net worth families fail to successfully pass their wealth on to the next generation as they wish to and really hope to. It's one of their many of our clients. It's their their driving yeah. um, desire is to make sure, you know, this big um, success they've built goes on to benefit their kids and their grandkids. So when we read the study and, and have really thought about what um, is happening most of the time. We realize, okay, our clients are relying us to significantly improve these odds for them, their families, their kids, their grandkids, and sure. that's where we got into this um, this area, uh, looking at the family constitution and and really getting on the um, the deep drivers of what's going to hold a family together through generations. 
Right. And that's really the topic of our conversation today as a whole, James. It's the idea of this document, the family constitution. And we're going to hammer this home in a few moments, but still to kind of set the scene, if you will, for our for our viewers and, and our listeners, are there any specific wealth-related issues that you tend to see arising more than others among those families with significant assets? So it depends largely on the amount of assets as well as the family. The family's involvement in a business together, mm. but broadly speaking, we see wealthy families grow and expand. The wealth of families grow and expand over time. And one big issue that keeps them together is looking at how they share their capital. Sometimes the wealth remains commingled because of legal structures such as multi generational trusts. However, family members who feel wronged may, in, you know, some wrong in some way, they may take legal action trying to break up such trust creates, you know, still greater family disharmony and potentially jeopardizes the financial uh, standing of the family as well. So trusts alone are not a silver bullet solution, but we look at the family dynamics altogether and see, you know, with their involvement in the family's capital and, you know, whether it's running a business or just a, a, a series of investment vehicles, what are the different personalities involved and what are the what are the driving mission what's the driving mission of of the um of the family altogether so it's a dynamic process yeah dynamic indeed it can also be a little sticky in some instances i mean think about it the matriarch and patriarch working their tails off for years to be able to develop this level of wealth of course in the back of their mind their thoughts are we'd love to pass this down to our future generations so that you know the it's the old adage i'd love my kids to not work a day in their life but obviously you got to teach them some lessons here and there but still that's that's kind of the general consensus that any matriarch or patriarch would want for their family when they have significant wealth so the question is, you know, begging to be asked, James, what can families do then to create and ultimately maintain more harmonious situations among themselves where the attitudes and their ideas around wealth are all aligned and everyone's working together and on that same page? What can they be doing? So there are a couple of steps, but I want to highlight one of the things you mentioned in your question there. These are sticky things like mm -hmm. this makes the nuts and bolts of you know asset allocation and investment consulting really seem easy and by the numbers we're talking about the sticky emotional uh kind of challenging parts that hey let's be honest none of us want to do that work um it's it's not fun so just say we get into an area that is often avoided quite frankly um by most families and then we try to make it fun and we've got a team that comes together around this and we've got a lot of best practices. But in general, um, when we you know, suggest that families consider creating a formal family constitution, the first thing I wanna highlight is that we're suggesting don't do it alone. We're not saying, hey, here's a form, fill it out, figure it out on your own. Right. We're saying, allow us to partner with you on this. Mm -hmm. Let us bring together, our team has worked with you know, some, uh, the great family offices all, all over the globe mm -hmm. and taking those best practices to say, okay, how do we create this? We call it a family constitution, but you could just call it a, a, an agreement, anything. Let's get these ideas down in writing so that we've got an effective tool that's going to help us dodge the serious conflicts and facilitate mm -hmm. the, the coming to, to agreements among family members. 
Um, it, it's something, again, it's, it's the sticky part. It's not what everyone wants to yeah. go to and, and mess with right off the bat. But right. once you've got in place, you see the shoulders come down, the faces relax. They're <laughs> like, oh, that's right. This was something that we needed to get out on the table and, and get these preferences, you know, constructively listed out where we can see them. So the family constitutions lay out the future directions and the actions that the family intends to take in a, you know, a, um, didactic sort of way, but in, in a, um, you know, intentional approach, it's just a, a way of saying, okay, let's get our checklist out in the paper. Let's get it out in the open and discuss this amongst, we call it stakeholders. And it's just all the family members. So this is an approach we see taken routinely by the ultra high net worth, you know, the mm -hmm. 500 million and, and up kind of um, private family office uh, net worth individuals. Yeah. And they're getting really positive results with this. Mm -hmm. So we take this idea, we say, okay, this is a step that far more families should consider. Even if their net worth is nothing like that amount, at the end of the day, it's not the total number of dollars that really matters. It's the intention, what we're trying to do with those dollars. If it's how to pass them on to charity or to our kids and grandkids, let's make sure we get that done right. So you know, we're not in the 75% and up group that fail to pass these assets on successfully. Let's improve the odds. Right. Yeah. And, and I think I heard you mention this a little bit, but I'd love to kind of circle back to it briefly, James. And you had even mentioned to me right before we, we were able to jump on together that, you know, this is kind of an ongoing thing for you. You and your team over at Cumberland River Group have been working through a similar situation like this recently. Um, but specifically, my, my question that I'd love to circle back to, James, would be how does a family constitution ultimately, you know, promote the better relationships, especially when they're concerned with this sticky situation of a family's wealth? How does it ultimately... I guess will work. So it's family constitution start by recognizing that there is contentiousness mm -hmm. in nearly all families. You know, we, right. we put on our best face always, and and there's that, um, you know, approach. But also, let's just you know, call a spade a spade. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be fights. That's what you know helps our families stay together over time is healing after those fights are coming back together. So family constitutions seek to really spell out the specific ways a family can effectively address conflicts that are almost always, you know, going to arise over time and across generations, address them and, and move through them. So one of the biggest goals a family constitution serves is to prevent the types of family conflicts that will result in big tears and, you know, and financially, diminishing fortunes. So they're designed to detail how a family will deal with dissent when it arises. We're not saying if. <laughs> and when there is a specific method for managing and dealing with those conflicts, mm -hmm. those methods are well documented. They're described. You know, we even practice them ahead of time. So right. a family can be very effective at reducing the mm -hmm. infighting, maybe not eliminating it, but eliminating the deep scars that might result, you know, sure. so these are things that, okay, we can, we can go through these. We've got a framework mm -hmm. to get through it. And, and really the whole point of a family constitution is to head off the big conflicts by promoting communication and striving for consensus around the small conflicts. Um, right. So letting, letting family members, you know, think about their core principles, their values, their long-term intent, 
um, and, and really, you know, kind of go down that road. So they've got a way to say, okay, these are things that we do agree on. Mm -hmm. So we can sort out the things that we don't. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you use a nice work word there, framework. It's a, it's a set of guidelines, principles, you know, it's on paper. Everyone can see this. They know they have to adhere to it. So, you know, when little bumps in the road do arise, you can always revert back to this uh, and say, Hey, look, remember we talked about this. This is, this was part of our, our family constitution. So that being said, how would a family then James go about drafting this family constitution that, you know, obviously is your caters towards achieving those types of goals and outcomes they desire. So a family sh constitution should, among other things, help your family equ equitably address issues around its wealth, which might include assets such as an operating business or properties such as real estate, art, and, you know, in investments, the portfolio and, and other savings. So specifically, a constitution should specify how the wealth is to be used by family members what limitations there are on how it's spent and invested and donated, who makes the decisions on, on these uh, allocations, how these decisions are made. These are usually always understood and assumed. So a lot of times when we, we get to that one, there's not a lot of pushback, but by getting it down on paper, where this really helps is when there's uh, succession events and handoffs, um, it helps at least identify, okay, these were the things that, were, that this person was taking care of. So this is what, you know, their spouse is going to have to pick up or however that, that um, right, right. transition works. So how family members can provide impact um, or input on the decision-making around the distribution and the use of the wealth, how family members are prepared to perpetuate the family values, manage the family wealth in general, a family constitution will involve three key sections. Who is defined as a family? That seems like it would be obvious, but you know, people get married, people get hey, divorced, it's, kids it's are born, uh, things happen. So, um, right. and I have to really mention things change more rapidly oh, gosh, than yeah. I think any of us really give credit mm -hmm. to. So um, keeping up with who is defined as a family is not a one and done, but as families mm -hmm. become larger, sometimes decisions are made specifying who is family, who is not. Um, and, you know, and, and also, you know, what happens over time, the ideology of the family, this spells out what the family stands for, including values and objectives. Again, these are dynamic things. This is how, what they, what the values are this year. They're different from what they were five years ago or 25 years ago. And also, you know, the reasons for staying together. Details the rationale for managing the capital jointly and the benefits of maintaining family cohesion. And these are sometimes, you know, really abstract factors such as love and concern, compassion for one another. And sometimes they are, you know, the hard, cut and dried financial considerations. And those are usually part of this section of, you know, sort of the cost benefit analysis mm -hmm. of, you know, why we keep, you know, this entity as a shared one, as opposed to trying to divide it up. Um, sure. These things get uh, really very nuanced, but it's something that takes some real work to mm -hmm. define, you know, these, these factors. No, and it makes total sense. James, let me ask you this in a little bit of a hypothetical situation. Let's say we're dealing with a really big family, a lot of kids involved in the situation 
ultimately, when it comes down to drafting this family constitution, who from the family should be involved in these discussions and these issues and then ultimately creating and working through the actual document because it's I don't I would imagine for a big family it's probably not one of those situations where you want an all hands on deck you know scenario but walk me through that who should be involved well if if you've ever been at the Thanksgiving dinner where everyone's in the kitchen trying to help out oh, you, yeah. you've often seen like hey sometimes less is more right uh, but <laughs> the key decision makers across the family need to be involved and be heard. So in mm -hmm. developing a family constitution, it's necessary to gain consensus among family members without broad-based agreements. The family constitution will likely, you know, not even be written. And if it is, it will be contested because not everybody's voice is involved there. So a family constitution should be written when family relationships are strong, or at least they're not strained that makes consensus more likely. And all parties should be motivated to reach agreements and develop the shared solutions. So um, you're not necessarily getting everybody into one room at once and saying, okay, let's brainstorm here. Mm -hmm. But once you've got a couple of ideas together, that you can you know, put that out there, okay, here's a starting point of, of what our you know, kind of constitution is gonna look like. What mm -hmm. else would you add? What else would you take out? And you start bringing in every other, we call them shareholders, but if you have family members, everybody's ideas into it. So it's right. a it's a living, breathing document. It's something that's really sure. changing a lot over time. But as long as we're using this as a tool to keep reaching consensus, mm -hmm. we keep decreasing the chances that there's going to be an estranged, you know, party who's going to come back yeah. and litigate so throw, that, that's yeah really throw a wrench into the scenario yeah. uh well hey you had mentioned that you know it, yes it's a framework it's it is a document i mean how formal are we talking about here is this a legal document the family constitution or is it ultimately just kind of recommendations so it's a written document so it's formal in that sense mm -hmm. and in this day and time i mean we've seen things upheld where like that's an email from somebody it's sure. date stamped that legally defines this is their intent. I am not an attorney. I'm not a state attorney or any other kind. So I'm not making giving any legal advice here. I'm just saying this is a set of guidelines and prescriptions, but it is not a legal binding document that must be adhered to. However, and in my personal experience, I mean, I, I received a... Um, a, a letter that my grandmother had written to my mom when I was born with, you know, a little, um, <laughs> a savings bond, right? Uh -huh. And this was not a legal document, but it listed out really clearly her intentions, my grandmother's mm -hmm. for, you know, how to demonstrate to me, her grandson, how, you know, to save money over time. And this is a small dollar amount thing. Mm -hmm. It was a little savings bond. It matured over 25 years. She had sure. carefully picked out the interest rate and uh, how it compounded. And it's one of those lessons that I learned. I, I think my mom shared it with me when I was like in grade school and learning about, you know, math and compounding mm -hmm. interest. So it was an early lesson 
But it was something like this where I, I realized, okay, a, a written document may not be legal or binding, but can be even more impactful because it is intentional and emotionally grounded. So um, that's that's how these uh, work, and that's where the um, the sense to honor and and you know the pledge to the these kind of agreements work over time. It's not on the legal side of things; it's on the emotionally binding side of things, which can be actually stronger than than, uh, than litigated. Uh, right. Events. Yeah, no, I, 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 I hear you. Um, one thing that I would love to kind of circle back to, James, you had touched on it earlier briefly, is that, you know, a family dynamic can change. Uh, a lot a lot can happen. A lot can shift. Uh, schools of thought shift. You know, the, even the family dynamic as a whole changes. Given all those changes, do you have any other advice to help maybe ensure that a family constitution remains relevant over time and ultimately gets adhered to by everyone that is involved well, because at the outset, this is a, a sticky area, it's a little bit hard, it's not anybody's favorite thing like going to the sure. beach, you know? So nobody wants to say, oh, we're gonna pull this thing out and redo it every year. You're kidding me, right? So um, we do wanna underscore it's not a one and done agreement. You don't put it away and you put it in a filing cabinet. It will be you know, important to modify as circumstances change. So we adopt a flexible approach and say, okay, certain family members can be given more authority over time as they get older, more trustworthy, for example. And that approach will encourage family harmony over the years as situations evolve. And our rule of thumb is to take this essentially every three years on the outside. They say three to five years. So we try to look at it every couple of years. Basically, every time that we're updating estate plans and wills and trusts, we always pull out the family constitution at the same time and say, okay, what's changed in here? And we try to you know, keep mm -hmm. this in, a, in, in line with our routine conversations, at least every 12 or 13 weeks, making sure this is on the table of, okay, who's who's new in the family, yeah, right. <laughs> what's changed. And so every year we kind of, you know, pull that back into the family mm -hmm. constitution kind of as a sidebar note okay. and make sure every three or five years we're going back and, you know, top to bottom going through it right alongside the wills, the trusts, the power mm -hmm. of attorneys, the healthcare power of attorneys. So these, these work together. Um, but it. we also don't want to tell people, okay, you have to be getting the whole family together on sure. family meetings every, every quarter. Sure. Um, that would, just that'd be unrealistic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, James, for those that are listening, for those that are watching right now, they are probably thinking, okay, Hey, I get it. This sounds great. Sounds like something I should probably be looking into. Where should they start? Who should they turn to for help with all this? Not only just from the process of identifying their values, their concerns, but ultimately to then creating the document itself and then doing exactly what you just said, revisiting and revising as they go down the road. Who do they turn to? So there are a number of resources out there. Mm -hmm. you, can, um, you can get large teams involved to this is all they do. There are some one-off providers. We work with a couple within our own firm that um, UBS happens to have a philanthropic division which it has a dedicated team, which we've had some great success working with them. Um, 
people can do it on their own. Absolutely. There are some great books to give you guidelines. There are some, you know, some different um, sort of worksheets you can go through. My preferred method, and we facilitate this quite often, is to bring in either our UBS team or some um, just independent providers who will do a you know, front to back consultation to go ahead and say, okay, here's what you're starting with. Get those, you know, sort of intake questions sorted out, run through those, give them a playback, a second mm -hmm. meeting to say, here's, here's what I heard you say. <laughs> and, you know, this is our starting point. Okay. If this isn't where you, you know, here's some things you might want to add in to get mm -hmm. your end result. And a third meeting coming back to say, okay, here's our, here's our path to get from where you are now to where where you're saying you want to get to. And then, and then we've got a scope of work and we can progress along there. I really believe getting help it, because it's such an emotionally loaded kind of conversation is going to be more beneficial. And I also recognize for many people, this is so private and this is so like tough to, to um, to get into conversations with other people about, they may need to start with kind of the, you know, worksheet side of things. So um, at the end of the day, I say, you know, it's very customized. It's a, as you said, a sticky area. Mm -hmm. So know yourself, know where, where your emotional strengths are and let us know. We can certainly connect you with, you know, the, the level of support that you and your family may most benefit from. And those will not be the same every time. You know, there's some people that 20 years ago, they were not going to touch this for anything. And at this point, they love, I mean, the first couple they didn't love, but by the third or fourth one, it had become like a part of their annual, you know, the, something they're really happy about having this out and clear and something that they could engage with all their family members around. So um, I'd say, you know, take it, take it at your own pace, mm -hmm. but certainly put it right up there with getting your will done, getting your right. healthcare power of attorney. It's something that uh, it takes a load off your mind once you've got this in place. So sure. that, that's where I'd say to get started. So we've thrown a lot at our audience today in regards to the family constitution, especially if this is a new concept for anybody. So let's summarize it in closing, James, how would you sum up kind of the key reasons that somebody should be considering, you know, drafting a family constitution, bottom line it for us, if you will. Okay. So, um, there are so many different factors in here. The bottom line is going to be to help keep tensions at bay and to keep family members focused on agendas instead of anger. Like that's that's the goal with this thing. Um, so, so getting a third party facilitator involved, that's always gonna help. And because money always sort of adds a, a level of potential uh, contention, litigation, a, a, a risk there, the family constitution helps start building consensus early to put some of those risks at bay. And I, I really want to go back to this, this statistic. I kind of mentioned at the beginning, like this is not a trivial, oh, you know, outside chance. More than three quarters of high net worth families run into a stumbling block here. 
you know, more than three quarters of high net worth families fail to pass their wealth on to successive generations as their explicit intent had been. So yeah. we look at that as, um, as a real priority. Say, why mm -hmm. mess with the family constitution? It seems kind of hard. It seems like emotionally sticky. Yeah. Well, the real reason is, is this is, you know, uh, avoiding a very likely negative event. So um, it gives us a, a route forward and we have seen some real success in using this method. Right. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, you've worked so hard for your dollars and cents and to establish this wealth, the last thing you want to see happen is a, a riff in the family for whatever reason, wherever that stems from, but then B for that wealth that you had had these aspirations you know, for, to, to just fizzle away because we weren't aligned. We weren't on the same page, you know, party a wanted this party B wanted that. And now we've lost more than half, you know, because of, uh, just a riff. And that, that's what this is all about. So James, I really appreciate you jumping on board with us today to kind of give us this overview on the family constitution. And I can foresee us circling back to this in, in different ways, because like you had said, it's a document that, kind of lives and coexists with the will, the trust, things like that. Um, so anyway, I think it was a super beneficial for uh, a beneficial conversation that is uh, for our audience today. So thanks for coming aboard. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Hey, and we want to thank you, our listeners, our viewers, for joining us for another episode of Advice You Can Trust. If you like what you saw, you like what you heard, feel free to like, comment, subscribe, share this knowledge with your friends and family. We thought we had a great conversation today, and we'd hate for anyone to miss it because this is this is a show about advice that you can trust. It's in the name. We want to make sure that you're taking some of these lessons learned, some of these experiences that James has you know had with his you know his company over at Cumberland River Group as well as UBS as a whole, and really all ultimately look to apply them potentially to your own financial portfolio, your own financial well-being. So ultimately, for James Nichols, I'm Ryan Ruff saying so long, and we thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Advice You Can Trust.